Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991. From the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between, we will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct-to-video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Popcorn. on 1991 Movie Rewind. In Popcorn, a fledgling college film program needs to make money to continue, so they decide to hold a horror film festival showing gimmicky movies from the 1950s in a soon-to-be-demolished theater. Along the way, they discover a short reel of film called The Possessor, which has a disturbing, murderous history and a potential connection to one of the students. At the festival, a mysterious figure appears, and it might be The Possessor who has come back to finish his masterpiece. Screenplay by Alan Ormsby under the alias Todd Hackett, directed by Mark Harrier, and released on February 1st, 1991. Have you seen Popcorn before? No, I haven't. <laughs> I have not either. I was very familiar with the box art, though. Oh, yeah. I I really like the art. It was uh, very creepy <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. I mean, that's probably... I don't know. I'm curious. I guess maybe I never watched it because of this, but I mean, I've watched all kinds of scary movies as a kid. So I think looking at this, I was like, I'm kind of scared. And I just... Yeah. It also looked older than it is. Yeah. It, like, it looks like it's something from like the 1980s, perhaps. And I did yeah. have, when I saw that it was on the list of 1991 movies, I'm like, is that the same popcorn with the cre- creepy cover of like the skeleton holding the face yeah, mask? Yeah, like face, yeah. Um, and you know, if you see the episode title thumbnail, then you know the box art, or you know, if you go on the website, you can see it too. Um, but I mean, that's a great introduction to the movie, but it doesn't really represent. I don't know. The content isn't as creepy as the box art. Yeah. It's much more comedic, and I don't know how much of that is intentional. I'm assuming quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, we can even say how. And people under the stairs. I mean, we can talk about how, like, that box art was somewhat creepy because it had a skull head. Right. Yeah, it made it look like it was more of a straight horror where the movie didn't play itself very seriously. As a horror. Like, this is the same. I'm wondering, is this an early 90s thing where the box art was creepier than what the movie content was? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's tough to say. Maybe we'll learn to... that as we go along. <laughs> yeah. As we see more horror movies. I'm trying box to art. just remember scary movies I've seen. I mean, besides, you know, like, the franchises, like Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street and stuff like that. I'm just thinking of these one, one-off one shoot scary movies. Or when we get to, like, Ernest Scared Stupid, maybe we'll... I mean, obviously. <laughs> like I mean, pure, obviously. Pure not, horror. <laughs> obviously, that's not going to be scary at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think how much of it is just like misdirection to just draw you in with eye appealing art and how much of it is, yeah, you know, to be like, Ooh, this looks kind of creepy. Let's watch it. Or, Ooh, this looks creepy. I don't want to watch it. Right. 
I mean, because, yeah, the skeleton holding up the face mask does tie into the plot of the movie, so it's like, you know, it it does have something to do with it, but it's not, um... I think when, it just, the, where you, I don't know how to explain, I guess when you, if I was looking at this when I was younger, I was thinking something way scarier, just by looking at this box art. yeah. But instead, we got done. something that was basically like like a scream before scream, like right. a comedic movie that pays homage to movies. Yeah, but it's you know has horror elements and gore elements, but it's not meant to be like freaky. Yeah, I, or I'm assuming it's not. Maybe just age has well, taken you, that away. You're right. You see like bird faces. You do see you know like. Yeah, people Some who are gore not guts, into, like, like, body horror, I guess. I mean, I'm, like, very... When it comes to horror movies, I'm very, uh, like, immune to a lot of this. Like, nothing really phases me. Like, uh, you have to do something really fucked up for me to be scared. Yeah. And this isn't, like, messing with my mind or anything. <laughs> I don't know how to explain. Yeah, and I would say I probably but, prefer the body horror side just because... When I watch a horror movie, I want to see really good practical effects. I want to oh, see, yeah. like, you know, like, I want to see the artistry of the special effects work yeah. that's being done. And that's typically done through, like, body horror and, like, pulsating things. So yeah. I want more of that. Um, this doesn't have tons, but it does have some where, you know, like, in the, the reel of the possessor, he's, like, pulling back his head and, like, exposing his brain at one point. And, yeah. Um, obviously, like, yeah, the burn victim type stuff and, like, putting on the faces and... But most of the time, it's, like, relatively mundane. Like, you have, like, the mosquito that, you know, goes into the chest of the guy. Uh, yeah, and it's, not it's super kind bloody. of, like, an the homage to the, to the older horror movies. Like the ones that they showed within, the films within this film. Yeah. And, and there's three of them, which I think they did a really good job with. Yeah. Um, because they're all fake, but they look very much like they, they could as be if part they of the were, era. Yeah, like a like the the mosquito that looks like. That's why I was like, was this a real movie? Because yeah. it looked as if it was a horror or scary movie from the fifties. Yeah, and it was shot in the same type of way as well. Like you know, you have like the the rear projection, and you have you know very static basic shots and you have you know the three D. I think the only thing that made me think that it was not a real movie. Uh, from the outset is that the quality was just too good. I know we watched the movie on a VHS, so it was kind of tough to tell the quality, but if it was a real film, you'd see, like, those film strip artifacts. You'd see, like, the, you know, like, the lines going down the screen Mm. from, like, where dirt had gotten into the projector, Um, and that was not there. So I think that was, like, my biggest clue until, like, near the end of the first sequence of The Mosquito where, you know, it's clear that they're kind of, like, hamming it up for the camera. Um, but the intention is to sort of not only pay homage to these types of movies from, you know, a couple decades previous, but also um, the gimmicks that come along with them. So, like, Mosquito is a 3D movie. You have uh, Attack of the Amazing Electrified Man, which used, like, the Shaco vision technology. Yeah. Um, and then you have The Stench, which was, you know, their fake Japanese import movie, which used Smellorama, where you, you know push odors into the cinema and all of those are real like Mm -hmm. technologies that were employed at one point as a gimmick but failed for very obvious reasons except for i guess 3d that's just sort of evolved 
into a thing, but it was like a gimmick that went away and then came back periodically for stuff like Jaws 3D or, you know, just like the rare occurrence and now it's back. Yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. 3D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Freddy's, Freddy's Dead. Freddy's Dead, yeah. Final Nightmare. Um, but now you can see like a 3D movie every weekend in the theaters if you want to because, you know. Yeah, it's just, yeah, now it just seems like. It's just like, like an extra It bonus. seems like every Marvel movie is just a 3D movie. Yeah, if you want it to be. Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't rely on it, but it's evolved to a, where it's like just an extra add-on to the experience. Right. So it's really cool, and and a lot of the um, the gimmicks and, and the deaths have to do with the gimmicks in those movies. So like you have the mosquito that comes out, and and part of that is because they you know it's this group of film students and their teachers um, who are setting up this theater, and they do like a really good job of dressing it up. Yeah, like they, it makes so me cool. want like I I want to go to something like this. Yeah, definitely. It looks like it would be a, an amazing like it, time. Especially because, I mean, I've never done what you did with the 24-hour horror movie things, but they mm-hmm. probably don't interact by doing, like, shock seats and, you know, smells or, yes. like, fog rolling through the theater. Yeah, I mean, there, like a and there's... a flying mosquito going above your seat. I mean, I would love that. The flying mosquito, I think, could possibly be done, but, like, you know, the shock of vision, there's, like, lawsuits. I right? know. <laughs> yeah, like, smell of vision, I know that would never, ever have, like... Issues and lawsuits I would hate, or vomiting I mean, I would hate that if I'm sitting in a movie theater, all of a sudden my seat, like, shocks me. That yeah. would drive me insane. Yeah. But, I don't know. Um, although there are, like, <laughs> 4D roller coasters that do that type of thing, right? Like, right. You know, are they, like poke your back or something or you know they like yeah pause you or, or yeah if you go to universal studios there's a lot of mm-hmm. but that's what you sign up for yeah you know that it's going to happen yeah and, and yeah. or i mean like in harry potter world where the the dragon's breathing fire in your face there is like hot air that blows on your face right yeah you get immersed but um, you're you're in that world yeah, but I mean, at that point, <laughs> but to have something like a, a giant mosquito that they built or got, I guess they got the prop from Dr. M, who's mm-hmm. like uh, played by uh, uh, Ray Walston in like a very short scene. Um, he's he's like a movie prop handler who just brings in a whole bunch of stuff that they can use to dress up the theater. Yeah, and I guess one of those things was this giant mosquito that they rig up and they swing you know, into the audience at a key moment of the feature to sort of, like, add to the appeal of the 3D stuff, which is really cool. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, the Music Box Theater in Chicago does a 24-hour movie festival every year, you know, assuming no pandemic is happening. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's a blast, and they have, like, interviews, but they don't really have those, that type of interaction, no. But it's the same type of atmosphere. Like, in this movie, I thought it was really cool because you see, like, a whole bunch of people coming... And yeah, the dressed theater's up. packed, and yeah. They're, yeah, they're dressed up in costumes. It's really weird that they keep their masks on and just put the 3D glasses on over their masks. Yeah, if you're <laughs> wearing, like, a giant robot mask. And they just put the 3D glasses on over that. Yeah. And they're just sitting there in their masks the entire movie. I'm just thinking about if you're sitting behind the person with that giant mask. Oh, yeah. I wonder what the reasoning was behind that, other than just to show, I don't know, just to, to make it 
give you spatial awareness, I guess, because you know where like certain people are seated from like the long shots of the audience. And so if you see something happening in the aisle and you also see this other character, then you know where it is. Mm. I don't know if that's part of it or if like the movie was shot in Jamaica and maybe they wanted to like hide the extras by putting them in masks to make it look like it's not like a predominantly Jamaican audience and try to, you know, pretend like it is in California, like the movie's supposed to be by, you know. Why? You think that's like they're, because. Like they're trying to like like diversify the crowd by hiding the heads. But I think that's what I was thinking about. think that it is a more diverse racially crowd than like just pure Jamaican extras. That's, I mean, yeah, the. The trivia is, yes, this is filmed in Jamaica, and then that theater that they filmed it at is, like, a real... I don't know if it's still there now, but it was filmed in Kingston, Jamaica, at a real small theater there. Mm -hmm. But that's why I was like, where is the divert... The only person that was of color was uh, Kelly Jo Minter. Right. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And she was barely in it. Yeah, she was, like, stuck behind the concession counter. She had, like, one key scene where she beat up this guy who was... Like a bully. Yeah, like, I guess a bully. I mean, if this was in Jamaica, why didn't they just have a mixture of diversity there? And the the other people of color was the Jamaican band that played between movies, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that... They provided the entertainment. You can definitely see that a lot of the extras are jamaican yeah right? like especially like in the balcony side of things which is why i'm thinking like maybe they use masks to hide them uh, off you I know just, what i mean i thought that was um but it's supposed to be uh, taking place in california ocean view they go the the college program is in uc ocean view and it's like a film program of like 10 people all together mm-hmm. which is weird like i don't know if it's supposed to be like a club or if it's actually supposed to be like an actual like major they don't really establish that mm-hmm. <clears throat> i guess it's a club because they I, say they need funding, and they, yeah. it's upon themselves to get the funding to keep the program going. Yeah, I mean, the movie starts off with the protagonist, Maggie, who she's having these reoccurring dreams uh, about a young girl named Sarah. And, you know, it starts off with her, you know, waking up from a bad dream and then telling her mom. And then asking her mom hey, do you know anything about someone by the name of Sarah? The, mother, the mother's like, oh, you're deciding to call your character Sarah? I wonder why. Yeah, and she's yeah. like, I don't, that's just what was in my dream. Because she's using her dreams as like a, a to make basis a movie. for a screenplay. Yeah, so like she wakes up and records it on audio tape. And basically she's like, I'm really gravitated to this name Sarah. And then her mom's like, huh, why? And then, you know, her mom is getting demonic prank calls i forget what they say me too but it was just it was something like the possessor i don't know it was like the possessor guy yeah saying stuff like that to her they don't show like the mom is by d wallace and they don't show too much of d wallace which she yeah i mean she has a key role but not many lines yeah like she's around in like the beginning and then also comes back for the the end. end Um, but yeah, she doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, honestly, like the biggest names that they have in this movie are, you know, plastered on the box, but they don't have a whole lot to do. So you have like D Wallace or D Wallace Stone, as she was known for a long time, who is 
nominated for General Hospital for an Emmy uh, back in 2016. Uh, she was nominated for Fangoria Award and The Frighteners. Um, she'll be in another couple 1991 movies, Alligator 2, The Mutation, and also Rockadoodle. She's in Rockadoodle. Huh. Um, but she's, you know, there's a lot of scream queens out there, but she's definitely one that's in the conversation. Like Hills Have Eyes, The Howling, E.T., Cujo, Critters, The New Lassie <laughs> TV series, <laughs> um, Invisible Mom and Invisible Mom 2. So, like, she's, you know, she's known for horror. So if you have a D. Wallace movie with, you know, horror, then it's something that people are going to gravitate to. Yeah. But she doesn't have a huge role. And then, like, Tony Roberts, I guess, was something of a bigger name, mostly on Broadway for, like, Victor Victoria, but he plays, like, the, the main teacher, Mr. Davis, like, their mentor. Um, so, you know, you have the, the, these big names that don't do a whole lot or aren't, trying, or aren't in the movie a whole bunch because they get picked off early on or whatever else. Um, I think Mr. Davis is the first to die, technically. Yeah. I thought the dream sequence, though, was also a really good introduction to the movie. Like, that sequence was really cool. Yeah. You have, like, flashing lights. You have, um, you know, pretty creepy effects or or sequences where you have, like, close-ups of, like, this demonic-looking guy's face and, like, his head is on the platter and he's talking to you and you have, like, you know, like, a bunch of, like, jump cuts to various different things and just really cool lighting and smoke and everything. So, uh, explosions are happening in there. Um, it's just a really cool scene. Overall, it happens pretty much right away, which is cool. Um, and then we see that scene again when they find this movie, The Possessor, as part of their, um, cleanup or, you know, setup of the, of the theater. And that's when Maggie, played by Jill Sholin, um, makes the connection yeah. like oh this, this isn't is... just a dream like this is yeah this is i'm happened. channeling this like this this was this somehow is a memory of mine yeah uh and like she faints and it's like i need to know who this is like what is this movie i need to know yeah and then <clears throat> they're informed by um davis i think informs yeah. them that it's made by someone by the name of Lanyard Gates. Yeah, which is such a weird name. Who killed his own family while shooting the final scene for this movie. Yeah. Before setting the theater on fire and then it trapped the audience inside. Yeah, the idea was um, he's like a failed filmmaker. Everyone hated his experimental avant-garde films. And so he makes The Possessor, which was mostly done on film, but the last scene was performed live in person, mm -hmm. where he literally kills his wife on stage and was going to kill his daughters and kills his daughter as well, mm -hmm. and then sets the theater on fire and he burns up along with the crowd. Yes. And that's his last laugh. Right. And now, and now he's back. Now The Possessor is, is back. Or, or at least this film has been uncovered. Right. At this and, point. Yeah, and then Maggie goes back home and asks her mom, have you ever heard of Lanyard Gates? And then that's when her mom is like, where have you heard that name? She doesn't say, yes, I do, or mm -hmm. no. She just says, where have you 
heard that yeah, name. Yeah, where have you heard that name? And hey, let's go on a vacation. Forget this film festival thing. Let's just get away yeah, from she, a while. Or just her to quit the festival. Yeah. <laughs> and then they should just go to... This is like, just tell your teenage... Just typical movie Just logic. tell your teenage children the tr- truth. Like, right. I, I don't well, know. Is she, is she even a teenage... She might be like early 20s at this point because it is like college. So But, but tell say, your but... adult yes. child the <laughs> tell, truth. Tell this person who is clearly old enough to handle some of this information. Um, but instead of saying, oh, yeah, this guy fucking made a movie and tried to, and killed his wife and uh, set a whole theater on fire. And yeah, you like, I don't. Why are you trying to protect her by hindering the truth from them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but she does think that she can protect Maggie because by she gets the prank call. To, yeah, she gets the um, prank call again and is told to come to the Dreamland Theater. Yeah. Um, and then she goes, um, and then like the, once you know what actually is happening in the movie, the most inexplicable thing in the movie happens where all of the letters from the marquee start popping out at the mom. What's yeah. the mom's name? Her Suzanne. Name is Suzanne. Yeah. Um, start popping out at Suzanne, uh, onto the ground and then is replaced by like this fade in of the possessor. Yeah, that's the most supernatural of this element or movie. I think it's the only supernatural thing that really yeah. happens, right? I I don't know why the possessor was like put on with like fake lettering when they could have just used the actual letters of the marquee and then did like a, you know, camera yeah. trick to actually make it show up, but anyway, that that's uh, that's you, know, you make it th- it makes you think that this is a paranormal yeah entity yeah because how do you rig the marquee to like pop out those letters and yeah. then put in like a brand new word out of nowhere out of thin air yeah when again it's a real person it's not a supernatural being <laughs> and so um but it's a really cool scene, but it's one of the first plot holes that you probably... Yeah. Well, maybe not one of the first, but, you know, one of the most obvious once you know what's going on. Yeah, she goes into the theater, uh, despite all that. Um, and then another plot hole happens, I think, where, you know, she's near the, the screen, um, the film screen. She sees a shadowy figure. She has a gun and is tra- in- intending to end this whole thing. And she shoots the person... And it seems like it connects. The person, like, flops down to the ground. And right. then a couple seconds later, arms pop out from behind the screen or wall and grab her. Yeah. So were there two people the whole time? And who is his accomplice? Did the- he not actually get shot? And then, like, while she was, like, relieved by the wall, he got up and ran behind the wall? I this I don't know. <laughs> so I mean another like weird little thing that you think about later on. Yeah, once you know what happens at the end, you go back and realize how did this scene happen? Yeah, or why did it happen? And I'm assuming we're probably going to be giving away the ending of like who is the, the Well, killer, yeah, right? I mean, because this... there's a lot to talk about with that whole thing too. Um and so there's there's more plot holes that uh, happen with that person's actions. That all happens, the mom is gone, but Maggie doesn't suspect anything because she wakes up the next morning and sees a little note and is like, today's the big day, good luck. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, Which, I guess... I don't did, know where that came the from. Possessor, <laughs> did that possessor person 
go in her house and write that note to I make her think so. that her mom went on a trip on her own or something? Or just wasn't there to say goodbye in person for that particular time? I yeah. don't know. Tough to say. Um, but yeah, then like people start showing up with the, their yeah, awesome costumes the and stuff. Of the festival. And the movie theater looks amazing. They have this really cool thing, which, you know, if I were building like a... a a horror house of my own they have like shot clock which was like the coolest thing <laughs> i don't know yeah we have I mean, like yeah, a skeleton got... and there's like a beating heart and like the blood like pumps down as the time clicks when the, when the movie's about to start so that was really cool i don't know if that was original prop or if it's something that um that pre-existed but the shot clock was really cool um all kinds of decorations they have posters some of them are for like legitimate actual past horror movies like the tingler and incredible melting man and stuff like that um and so it's like really dressed up and they have like you know the concession stand and hot dogs and popcorn yeah and during the montage sorry to sort of just detract and go backwards a little bit during the montage they made a really big deal of the popcorn machine yeah and, the, like, they're showing it off, and, like, they're both, like, standing on side-by-side side and, like, you know, pointing at it and stuff like that. And one of the trivia pieces that I saw on IMDb was that originally the popcorn was supposed to be somehow, like, a central piece of the plot. Or yeah. it was going to factor into the plot, and then it was cut later on. And I had no idea how it would have actually fit in. But that's why the title is Popcorn, supposedly. But right. then they just kept like the title because it was, like, The catchy. ending credits is, like, his face coming out of Popcorn or something. Yeah, I don't know. But, like, they, they make a big deal out of the Popcorn machine. The movie's called Popcorn. And then, yeah. like, I don't even see anybody eat it in the entire movie. Like, you don't see people grabbing bags at any point. It's just there. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's weird. But... I don't know. I, I know that there's like a documentary about the making of this movie that came out in like 2017. Maybe they touch on what yeah, happened we, with that. Because I think it's probably only available on the DVD and we had the VHS. Yeah, we couldn't. And I don't think it was on YouTube. So we. I, yeah, I don't know. So um, if anybody knows, let us know because we're curious about what the history is of. Popcorn. Yeah, yeah what happened? <laughs> what was the device? How would it have been used? But yeah, people are there. They're showing up. They have really cool costumes. Um, yeah, like Maggie the, is working the box office. And everyone has, like, their own costumes as well. So, But what's Maggie dressed up as? I don't even remember anymore. Is she dressed She's up? She's kind of, like, dressed up as like a medieval times. Oh, like a princess? Yeah. So, like, a damsel in distress? Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't seem like she was really in costume too much. She was just wearing, like, one of those form-fitting type dresses you would see, you know, yeah. in medieval times or something. Yeah. But yeah, other one, every other people are like dressed up like as a um, a monster of some sort, a monster or like someone who you know white white hair and like a straight jacket or someone's like a nurse and um, I mean those were the people that were working at the theater. Yeah, yeah, the, the film students. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, people coming in like the viewers, they were all dressed up as someone like a monster. Yeah. So that and was really cool. They show that while they're waiting in line to get their tickets, they show, you know, people commenting on each other's like costumes, I guess. Yeah. Saying, and... Hey, cool costume. And then there's this one guy who had like a double he was like a double headed mm-hmm. thing, a monster. And then someone's like, Hey, cool costume and he's like, Thanks and he goes, Hold on a minute and then his the second prosthetic head just throws up like green 
yeah. stuff. And that was that was that scene. <laughs> that was that scene. <laughs> uh, that that two headed guy was played by Ethan Ormsby, the director, well, writer, uncredited director's son, uh. um, who on, who went on to do visual effects for movies like Spider Man and Matrix Reloaded, and unfortunately passed away in two thousand eight. So mm. that was that was the writer's son who played the two headed man. Mm. Yeah, and then we get to a man, like a mysterious-looking older man that comes up and buys a ticket from Maggie and calls her Sarah and then walks away, and that's when she just leaves her box office and tells another her uh, another of her classmates... Uh, Tina? Tina, yes, to, you know, take over the box office, and then that's when Maggie goes and tries to find this older man she tells her other classmate toby who is he is like the person that came up with this whole idea i think he might be a teacher okay i I thought he was i think a classmate yeah it's not fully clear he could be like one of those like um or like a ta or something yeah he could be like a ta type of like an older grad grad, yeah okay because he doesn't look incredibly old. He definitely looks like he could be either one. Um, but, like, he's, you know, leading the charge with Mr. Davis to get this set up. And he's, like, in the front of the room when they're introduced. So I'm assuming he's a teacher, a PA, or TA type of, type of guy. So she, Maggie goes off and tells Toby that she saw, quote, lanyard gates. Like, she, that's what she thinks. Yeah. Because I think at this point she had sort of mentioned that she had similar dreams or that... Um... Yeah, I think she, after they saw that movie, The Possessor, she passes out and then her classmates are like, hey, are you okay? What happened? Then she tells the story about her dreams, saying, I've had dreams similar to this movie. Right. Yeah, or how... Yeah, so they... Uh, her indications classmates, that she thinks yeah, that this may be a real Are aware yeah. of what's going on in her life yeah but none of them believe it yeah she chases around this guy she sees him like up in the balcony or something and then as soon as he's spotted he gets up and walks away and that's when he finds toby and toby's like okay i'll go look yeah and then another plot hole kind of happens where like he gets locked out outside the door opens to the outside on its own and he goes through it yeah and he's locked out and then he's like yeah so Knowing the ending, how does that happen and why? Unless Toby, (laughs) like, I mean, Toby was one of the people to set this whole night up. He knew a way back in. watching him. You know what I mean? Huh. Okay, so if you don't want to know the ending, stop listening. You can continue listening. <laughs> I mean, this movie is 30 years old. <laughs> yes. All right. But, like, if, if we piqued your interest enough that you don't want to know... Yeah, if you want to stop and watch the movie and, then, and figure then, it out. ...and then come back to us. Uh, but Toby is the, the killer. Yeah. So nobody's watching him. He's supposedly chasing after this guy who is him, and he goes through this door that opens and gets locked out of the building... No one's watching him to see him, like, leave out the wrong door or something, so why even bother? Oh, it's like, pretending to chase himself? Yes, why is he pretending to chase himself? I think to show Maggie that he cares. I don't know, maybe... But Maggie's not watching him do it, so it doesn't matter. I don't know, to show us the viewer. He could just go to the bathroom 
and be like, oh, I yeah, lost but then him. they'll I, be I like, if we were here. the viewer watching him go to the bathroom, we'll be like, hey, what the fuck? Why isn't he looking for the guy? I know, but like, it's a movie. You don't actually have to like. Say you can just see. To okay, then, then just show point. a scene of him running off, not showing him exactly. Okay. Yeah, why show him go through this door and get locked out? I guess just to show the viewer saying, oh. It couldn't be Toby because he's locked out. Yes. But it doesn't make sense that, yeah, that it happened is my point. It's another big plot hole for me. Um, like, how does the door open by itself? And then, like, why would he go through it and get locked out if he is the person? Um, I mean, it seems as if he has his home own lab or lair in that movie theater because we see him you know with that machinery and stuff yeah like where that's in the theater right yeah it's in the basement okay yeah i mean so maybe he goes down into the basement and then he does his thing it could be (laughs) but again it yeah the the setup towards that they didn't need to show it obviously they're trying to make it seem like toby is not the suspect yeah but when you know that he is at the end it makes absolutely no sense those actions take place that's my point like they could have cleaned that up in some way by just like showing him walking out and going through things or like and then not really and then just not reappearing like just don't show him you know like show him go down the steps maybe show him going through the lobby or something or like looking around and then cut back to maggie yeah. Who is interrupted by Mark, who we haven't really talked about too much yet. Yes. But Mark is, like, this uh, guy who wants to be Maggie's boyfriend, I guess. Like, when he's first introduced, he's, like, super aggressive and, like, just, like, it's like, hey, I Maggie, and then, like, instantly like, makes out with him or with makes out with him. her. Like, I thought they were together. I don't know if it's ever really established. I think they just want to go he out. Wants to, he you wants know... to, be... In take their yeah sure. he wants to take their relationship to the next level by like sleeping with her and he's yeah just and she's like no i'm trying to focus on writing my script go away yeah like i don't want to go like, out leave me on alone. a date right now i'm working on my script i'm not focused on so then uh, yeah he, he so yeah he's, like, he brings kissing in. her and like okay well i might not be around when you come to your senses type of a like oh he's just line. being like a fucking dick yeah um so he's our he's our hero, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Unfortunately. And so yeah, yeah. Mark, Mark comes in and like scares Maggie. He like yeah. Acts well, like first we b- go back because when she's working at the box office, Mark oh, buys yeah. two tickets for him and another girl that he brought in. Joy. Yeah. So he's there with Joy. He like I guess after or before the first movie even starts, he gets up. No, it's like during the movie. Oh, during the movie. He's like, hey, I'll be right back. Yeah. And then that's when he goes to find Maggie to talk to her. Yeah. For some reason. I guess, like, to apologize for, like, bringing another girl, even though, like, they weren't for going being out. An that's, that's the whole know. thing. Like, we, I don't like know. they weren't going out. Like, he's free to date whoever the hell he wants. And, like, I don't know. He's, like, embarrassed that he brought her to the thing that he knew that she would be at. I don't know. He knew that she was a part of this group setting up this whole movie night thing. Yeah. And whatever. You weren't going to avoid her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, 
Um, he finds her in the film projection booth where Toby had been running the movies, basically. Um, and then, yeah, Mark, like, scares her and she accidentally headbutts him, like, from behind or something like that. And then, and then they talk about how the possessor is after her and he doesn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, meanwhile, you know, again, I guess... Typical asshole guy behavior type of right. thing. Like, let me get this straight. Yeah. <laughs> you think that this person, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, meanwhile, the the Mosquito movie is being shown, and that's when Davis, the their teacher... Uh-huh. He sets up... I was the teacher, yes. Yeah. He's trying to set up, you know, the mosquito model that's going to fly across the theater and um, with, like, a little remote control thingamajig. Mm -hmm. But you see someone else using another remote... Like, an, the real control... Like, he's controlling yeah. the mosquito. It's either the real remote control or one that can bypass yeah, Mr. Like, Davis's it overrides remote control. Yeah, because it davis's yeah. control for some like for some reason so it's like a really cool effect the audience is super into it because like you have this giant mosquito coming in at like the climax of the movie just swooping in and like yeah you know, really yeah, cool like hey an screaming. actual mosquito 3d and i love the mosquito effects in the movie within the movie too like when the guy's like blood is getting sucked oh out yeah of his through, hat and stuff. through his head yeah yeah that's so cool uh but anyway <laughs> so yeah the this mysterious killer um, overrides the mosquito and, like, uh, makes the mosquito, like, turn around and come back and impale Mr. Davis yeah. in the chest. But no one sees it. Like, the audience doesn't see it Yeah, no one sees... It happens Because, yeah, Mr. Stage. Davis is way up in the rafters controlling it. So, and, uh, yeah, he dies. But It could have yeah. been a cooler scene. I mean... I don't know. Again, like... We just see, like, the mosquito... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say snout. What is it? <laughs> like, yeah, like the needle. The needle of, of his, part yes. of the mosquito goes through his chest. And then, yeah, we were both talking, like, why would you make... Yeah, why would you make it sharp enough to impale something? Yeah, why would you make this model with a very pointy... Right? thing come out of it like, like a, an actual needle it. or make it like <laughs> rubbery or something yeah. i don't know but yeah they use the movie within the movie to to set up a real kill um and then it goes on and you see him like to, swinging from a mosquito a little bit yeah you go it goes on to the the second movie where another classmate of maggie's bud who is a wheel, wheelchair bound guy yeah. He, he's preparing for the second movie, which is, you know, has to shock the seats. So he's up somewhere setting that up and for the second movie, which is Attack of the Amazing Electrified Man. And that's when... I think... I don't know. Because in between the two movies, that's when we show... Uh, we don't see who the killer is yet, but we see Mr. Davis's face, like, being cut yeah. off. 
and put into like a solution and st- that's in between movies right that's yeah that's in between movies we see his face getting cut off and put into like a solution or like he like a, a mold is being made of his face in some form yeah um and so like and, and like at the very beginning of the movie like the first shot that we see over the, like the opening title is like a bunch of rubber faces on the ground yeah so like we know that that's like a thing um so yeah like that happens in between the movies um or like as the first movie yeah started. as bud is setting up these seat shockers you're yeah, you're also like a big seeing control panel yeah you're also seeing mr davis's face getting cut off and being prepared to be on a mold and this this is another sort of plot hole type of a thing with bud um because he like okay at some point tina comes in to check on bud right mm-hmm. and say you know what's going on and bud's like i have this cue coming up and uh all these are supposed to happen in a sequence i need mr davis's help to help me like set up the automated sequence mm. otherwise i have to do it all manually but like when he does it manually it's like super easy because all he has to do is like press a freaking button like what what's yeah, he's the, pressing what does the like random matter yeah maybe unless it's like a <laughs> sequence that something happens in the movie there's supposed to be some sort of sequence that happens in the audience at the same time as yeah, the movie why i don't know like who who why does it matter who gets shocked when i so don't even know but that's that's <laughs> the reasoning tina goes to look for mr davis because bud really needs him even though he's doing a really good job at shocking <laughs> yeah. people manually um so um tina i forget what tina's dressed up as she's, she's like, kind of sort just, of like a maid like in a way but mm, she's kind of like a she looks like a like bellhop a, yeah yeah, yeah like a stewardess of like an old time stewardess yeah. or something but she goes to find mr davis mr davis is there but not there because it's the killer with mr davis's face yes um, and yeah this is established that tina was having some sort of relationship with her teacher mr davis because yeah, she says like and all the classmates wonder how i got the straight a's yeah and but they start just flirting i guess and then she's flirting with him okay mr davis is kind of stoic because it's not really him yeah okay so he's not really talking yeah and, and she's like hey we're alone how about like a quickie type okay of okay because i thought he was talking you know the guy who says some has words Mr. but i don't know if it's much of anything okay and then she comes in she's like how about a kiss and she kisses quote mr davis like the well we know it's toby because we said yeah <laughs> so, so toby with mr davis's face on his face and as she's kissing him like the skin of davis's face starts like i don't know sticking onto her face like, yeah it's like gum. chewed bubble gum yeah yeah and i was I, I guess I'm okay. I don't know like science. Or, <laughs> I don't know the science because, you know, we know, okay, we know that Toby, you know, can change his face, but the Toby face is like very well put on throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And so when he puts on Davis's face, this is like a poorly put on mask, but. Or it's just too new or something. Yeah, that's what I was like. He literally just killed the guy, what, like five minutes ago? And he automatically made a mask and a mold of his face, like, within five minutes and then put it on? Yeah. So maybe all of that five minutes of putting on a face, 
like just it wasn't like set like it wasn't set yet or something could be i don't know i just thought it was weird yeah it's like a gooey cookie yeah out of the oven um (laughs) but it's i mean it's a cool effect yeah so yeah she freaks out by that but then you know he kills her like because you know yeah i forget how exactly but it's very uncreative he strangles her with like a rope like he goes behind her or something and just strangles her and then uses her as a puppet when when maggie and yeah uh, but then he cuts off he uses her face now like no, he, she just he just uses her as a puppet. Oh, okay, yeah, Remember, yeah. Like using her as a marionette and like, oh, Mr. Davis is that way. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then and he, like, but then he they don't eventually. Catch on they're dumb. He eventually takes her face off because he puts yeah, her yeah. face on later on in the movie. Yeah, just for like a quick little like sequence at the big reveal. Uh, Mark and Maggie find Tina even though she's dead and that's when the killer is manipulating her voice and it's body so and it's like oh she's all right. it's like, this it's like super really long bad conversation he's like oh yeah mr davis is it's like it's that kind of like fake voice yeah they don't guess... even say hey tina your voice is really weird yeah. they're just like oh okay tina like, why are you flopping your arms around so much yeah like why don't you open your eyes tina mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing like that then we cut back to bud still shocking people during this movie (laughs) and i guess that's sort of where like he might have used tina's face but they don't show tina's face when the fake tina comes up behind bud to tie him up yeah so maybe they uh, show the costume but not her face yeah so maybe he just put on her costume and kind of hid his face and then bud is like oh tina you're here can you help me out yeah and he starts to think that the tying up is like a kinky thing at first, and then it becomes serious. And, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like, I didn't make the connection earlier on, but yeah, I guess it makes sense that I think probably the only reason that character was in a wheelchair was so that he could be in the electric chair. Yeah. Because he gets electrified as the character in the movie gets electrified. Yes. As well. Yes. Um, and I would say that the electric effects in the fake movie looked Yeah, better. better than the real electrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's more subdued. It's basically just white lines on black and white film, right? So it's like it's easier to... And then in the modern day, you have like this blue and they just try to add too many effects to it. It just kind of looks like a weird, bad overlay. Um, but you get the juxtaposition of it. Um, so goodbye, bud. Right. And uh, and then the power goes out because of that. Yeah, the theater loses power, and Maggie is trying to find her way to Bud to find out what happened, and that's when she finds that he's dead. This is where she runs into Toby at this point, because she's like, oh, I ran into Gates, blah, blah, blah. Like, she starts telling him everything. Like, she ends up, like, running into Toby. Mm Mm-hmm. And then that's when she's like, oh, I ran into this and that, and, you know, I saw Bud dead. This She's freaking out. Yeah. And that's when Toby takes her into the basement, and, you know, he ties her up, and then... Yeah, like, come with me, we'll, we'll find a way out of here type yeah, yeah, of a yeah. thing, but instead he traps her. Um, but then Joy also sees them, because Joy... There's, like, this subplot with, like, Mark and Joy, and then, like, this big dude 
who yeah, like just kind of who just like gets up dumb. and like moves into Mark's seat when he leaves and like takes over the girlfriend and like puts his arm around her and she's was okay like, with it. I didn't care for that plot. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so like Joy is there and yeah, like, that subplot is that creates as a Mark gets up to talk to Maggie. All of a sudden, like this big muscly guy sits next to Joy and puts his arm around her, and then all of a sudden she's like, okay, cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. And when Mark is comes back to his seat, he sees you know, I don't even know that guy's name. It's he's just like big muscly dude. Yeah, I don't have him like written asshole down. Muscly my, dude. I don't have him written down my credits, which probably means that he probably didn't do much of anything after this movie. Mm. Or maybe he's in a bunch of nineteen ninety one movies and we can talk about him later. One of the two is true, but he's not on my list. Okay. Yeah, so this is while all this other shit's happening mark comes back to his seat and that's this big muscly guy's there and mark's like hey that's my seat can you get out the muscly guy's like nope <laughs> he's just like no bro yeah Mark's sitting a here beating in this movie yeah like, he's constantly like falling over getting so hit. they confront each other even though there's like a movie going on and the big muscly guy punches him in the face mm-hmm and that's when, during, you know, all this other stuff is going on, Mark is now by where the concession stand is, because he's looking for Maggie now, and that's when he runs into, you know, Kelly Jo Minter's character, Cheryl, and then another... Joni. Joni. They, they're just in the concessions talking, or, because, I don't yeah. know, they're just... They're just there. They're yeah, on the they're lobby while there. people are watching the movie. Yeah, they're, they're working, whatever. I guess. Yeah, Joni's about to do the effects for the third movie at some point with mm-hmm. um with, with the, the smell. With Leon the... who is in the straight jack. And uh that's when Mark is well, Joy comes to tell Mark that she saw because Mark is looking for Maggie. Joy just appears out of nowhere and is like, Oh, I saw her with that nerdy guy or yeah, whatever. They were going and they at were it. going at it. Hot and heavy. And so. um then that muscly guy appears and they have another confrontation. Another confrontation, Killy Joel Mentor kicks his ass. Yeah, the, um, and they're kicked out. Joy and kicks Joy Muscle out. Dude is kicked out of the theater. They lock the doors so they don't come back in. Yeah, and I think that's the only reason the scene exists is to establish that the doors are locked. Yeah. So that when Mark but then gets also out Mark later on goes out. That's, that's later he goes. Yeah, he later he goes, yeah. Um to try to find the truth behind uh, Lanyard Gates. Yeah, or Toby. Yeah. Boy, there's so much stuff happening in this movie. It's like a 90-minute movie, too. Yeah, there's so many things going on yeah. while other stuff is going on. Yeah, so, I mean, it's jam-packed full of stuff, but then it takes a very slow turn when Toby is in the basement with Maggie and, like, reveals his identity and, like, everything. I, I kind of tuned out because that was, like, a super long explanation of, like, here's who I am and this is why I'm doing this and here's my plot and everything like the yeah, typical villain like explanation thing. Yeah, he's like this personal thing. vendetta against her because we find out that he was, Toby was in the theater when Possessor was shown. Yeah, he was like it, a little kid so like his mom, his mom brought t- this little 
boy to a horror screen. I mean, I I've gone to horror I movies know, as a kid, so but still, <laughs> I know. Like he's like in the front row or something. I think with his mom. Said, with his mom, Lanyard Gates is Maggie's real dad. Um, he killed her mother on stage. Her real mother on stage. Suzanne D. Wallace was an adopted mother slash aunt. Aunt, yeah. Um, who changed their names later on to escape. Um, whatever possible stuff like Toby's doing, um, or repercussions or whatever, just get out of the limelight. Everyone thought that Sarah slash Maggie had died in the theater, but it turns out she didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone thought that most of the audience had died, but Toby survived, but was severely burned. Yes, and then he talks about how growing up he just was made fun of because he looked like a monster. And then he talks about how hard it is to get into the process of putting on a face, I guess. They don't really explain... He said that he got to be an expert and can do a very, very quick change. And then he sort of like shows it off by changing his face a few times with like some floppy ears and yeah, flaps yeah, yeah. of skin. Yeah, like most of it's attached and like the voice changes at the same time. Yeah, because, yeah, he's like, I can also look. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) He puts on Tina's face and he's like, I can also change my voice and, you know, be a woman if I want. Yep. And, um... Yeah, meanwhile, they don't really explain how, like, the body shape also changes. Yeah, because I'm like, (laughs) you still are this tall, lanky man. You're right. Yeah, because he's, he's very tall, but yeah, when he takes the shape of other people, he takes their voice and their body. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, and then, I mean, like, you know, again, Maggie, Maggie's just strapped up to this contraption because yeah. he wants to take her face, I guess? Or I does he just want to kill her? Again, I kind of just, like, tuned out. I mean, he, he does want to kill her at some point. I know he wants to kill her, but does he also want to take her face? Probably. Um... Yeah, I, again, I kind of tuned out at a point. Because it was just like 10 minutes of explanation in this 90-minute movie. <laughs> and, like, I'm... Like, let's get back to the killing. Like, let's get mm-hmm. back to the action. Like, it's cool to see, like, the floppy ear effect yeah. on the masks. Like, that was kind of a neat little prosthetic device. Um, I mean, yeah, and during all this... And then they bring out her mom he, he brings out Suzanne, her mom. And it's kind of funny how she's, like, in this mummified... Yeah, it's like a body cast. Yeah, because her arm is still... The way that she was captured was she was pointing her gun. So her arm is still out as if she's about to shoot a gun. And she's in this cast thing with the gun still out of the it's, cast. It's, like, it's to mimic like the pose that she was because um, yeah, Suzanne the pose she was going ruined to Gates's original plan. She she shot at Gates, which caused the fire nearby to be knocked over, which is why the fire started. Mm-hmm. Right. So the fire, I don't think, was supposed to happen. I don't think that the theater was supposed to go up in flames. But Suzanne shot Lanyard, who fell yeah. over into the fire, which burned up all those people. Yes. Yeah, so um, in turn. Toby's mad at Suzanne yes. for causing him to be a burn victim. Yes. And so she's like in the, the same position she Full was in when cast. she saved yeah. Sarah back. The thing you need to know is that he's going to finish Lanyard Gates's opus 
at some point. Um, yeah, and then during all, all this, that's when Mark goes to Toby's apartment to find... Toby brought Maggie to his apartment. Yes, yes. That's right. So after Joy said, oh, they were getting hot and heavy, and I saw them go to Toby's apartment, that's when Mark was like, I'm going to go confront Toby and Maggie and get Maggie or whatever. And so, Joni knew the address because like, it seems like everyone's kind of like mess, like fucking everyone else. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't know. Well, Joni, could be Joni friends. said that she. Well, Joni said that she had a crush on Toby. Oh, okay. Right, because like when when Toby came in as Leon, he was. She was talking to him. Yes. About Toby and like how how to like progress with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then like that's when Toby left the room and started having like a freak out in the basement. Like, don't talk to me about love. Blah blah mm, blah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she knew where he lived, and told Mark. And then Mark went there. And, and that's get... where he finds out that his landlord is evicting him. Yeah, because... at that very moment. <laughs> yeah, I know, at that very second. Like, Toby's wall, and then he sees Toby's walls are plastered with, like, articles about the incident. Like, pictures of, like, facial reconstruction. And... Yeah, typical serial killer setup. Yeah, pictures part. of Maggie with, like, scissors through her eyes, whatever. Realizing that, you know... Maggie's in danger, so he rushes back to the theater, and that's when he, the doors are locked. Yeah. So then he scales the building. He scales I was the like, what the hell? Window. Yeah. Like he just all of a sudden starts climbing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the, the landlord. I, I I really like the landlord character. He has uh, like such a short scene, but like he was like one of the funniest characters in the movie to me. Mm. But uh, played by Will Knickerbocker, who we've seen before. He was one of the detectives. I don't know exactly where, but he was one of the detectives in Cape Fear. Hmm. So. Okay. Um, yeah. He was also in Porky's 1 and 2, and that's going to be a recurring theme, because a lot of these people yeah. are part of the... The Porky's. The Bob Clark crew. Yeah. Who was a producer and helped with the special effects in this. Um, but yeah, so he climbs the building and, and, uh, <laughs> the guy who played Mark, Derek Rydell, Rydell, uh, did his all stunt, did all of his own stunts according mm. to what, um, we're seeing. And, and again, like he gets beat up, he, you know, like he falls downstairs, he gets like bashed. I don't know. Like he, it's like a running gag almost that like something is going to go wrong or that he's going to fall over and get hit. So while he's scaling, um, that's when that's when yeah, the like, movie The Possessor is playing. Yeah, so like they interrupt the stench and then the yeah. possessor starts playing and the audience is really upset about it. And like one of the one of the cool things and like again, sort of as the atmosphere is like they have interjections from hecklers in there. Yeah. You know, so like you have all the right you know, people giving standing ovations, but you occasionally hear like people just like riffing on the movie that's on the screen. And, like, when the uh, Possessor starts, you can hear somebody saying, I hate this movie. Thumbs down on this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. It's like, I want to be in that environment again. Mm -hmm. That sounds fun. And so, yeah, like, Toby's Yeah, Maggie is brought onto the stage because, you know, Toby's probably going to kill her on stage, like, as if how her yes. dad was going to kill her originally or whatever yeah and you see toby mimicking the actions yes. of the movie like perfectly on screen like the rear uh -huh. projection behind him and she maggie is pleading to the audience to save her but you know the audience thinks this is part of the show mm -hmm. and mark has to save the day <laughs> and yeah. that's when he uh 
like he uses the line like he's he zips lines down like using the mosquito you know zip line whatever yeah he puts his belt around like the mosquito wires yes because like, <laughs> he's zip lining down to the stage or maybe it wasn't the mosquito because he uses the mosquito later which is on a different set of wires yeah, I don't know. It's some he, sort of wire that's leading to the stage, and he's able to do it. But then <laughs> he causes it. the, whatever, the stinger, whatever it is. The same way that Davis dies is kind of like how Toby dies, because yeah, the stinger also s- stabs Toby in the chest, killing him. Yes. And then, you know, releases Maggie from the chair that she was in. And then the crowd erupts in applause because they think, you know, this is all part of the show. And right. that's pretty much the end of the movie. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really wish that the mosquito wasn't used twice. You know, because it was used to kill Mr. Davis and it was also used to kill Toby, who I think it's worth mentioning was out of a mask for the first time presenting himself to the crowd as like this villain with you know just like his burned face and say do you want me to kill this lady you know like like don't you want to see death you know um but i wish that they could have maybe thought of some other way to do it i i mean you know let suzanne maybe like actually shoot him again and like just close the book like bookend it the same way that lanyard Mm -hmm. was killed and just have him shot or something i don't know uh, but what wasn't lame was the music. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, it depends on your perspective. But, like, throughout this whole thing, they have, like, a band. And, like, when the power goes out, they bring the band up to, like, play a song while some of this other stuff is happening. We didn't talk about that too much. Um, Ozzy D and Stevie G is what's credited as performing the music. Um, but, yeah, it's, like, a whole, like, reggae band that's performing songs. Um it felt weird and it felt kind of out of place, but it was still like fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the major songs in there, Saturday Night at the Movies, which I didn't like the lyrics like at all. It just seemed it was... like something like somebody's uncle writing in the evening. I don't know. Um, but that song was written by musical powerhouses. This movie had like some <laughs> star power. By, well, like yeah. literally uh, Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann, mm. um, Oscar nominated for writing Somewhere Out There from American Tale. Mm. Uh, Golden Globe nomination for that, and then also The Time for Love is Anytime, which Cynthia wrote with Quincy Jones for the movie Cactus Flower. Uh, They have a Grammy win for the song Through the Fire from St. Elmo's Fire. They've also written on Broadway, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Like, they are powerhouse songwriters. And they wrote Saturday Night at the Movies as well as another song for this picture. Mm-hmm. Really weird to see that. It's also, just while I'm on that subject, the cinematographer of this movie won an Oscar for doing the cinematography for Gandhi, Ronnie Taylor. <laughs> so, like, there's, like, prestige behind this movie that sort of comes across at times. Um, but it's just really weird. Um, I will say, like, this is the type of movie that I wanted to see when we started this project. You know, like this movie, like I was like aware of in an ancillary fashion and like, you know, ready for it to surprise me. And like, you know, it's just, I was expecting something completely different than what we got. And like, it's, it's a good fun time overall. Like we're nitpicking about a lot of the plot points, but I mean, that happens in a lot of yeah, movies, that's... especially horror. Like it's yeah. just, 
standard. You know, there's, I mean, nothing's going to be perfect. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, like, to have this movie that's, like, a movie within a movie that's, like, paying homage while still, like, you know, working within the genre appropriately, you know, like, again, it's like Scream Before Scream. Um, I know it's not the first time it's been done. Like, you have, like, Fade to Black was another horror movie from, like, the 80s, which had, like, the movie theme involved in it. But, like, you know, it's just really cool to see stuff like this. Um, I just wish it would have gone a little bit further with the gore, perhaps. Yeah, I wanted to see more... Um, I wish it was scarier, I guess. Yeah. I, honestly, the scariest part was, like, the I Am the Possessor film footage. Or the dream yeah, sequences. Because those were genuinely creepy looking. Yeah. Um, and really well done. But maybe that's because of some of the behind-the-scenes drama. Which, I don't know if you want to get into, I guess we could real quickly here. Yeah. So, Alan Ormsby was the original director. He's uncredited in the movie, but he did, from all accounts that we can find, all of the film within the film stuff. So he did the Mosquito, Amazing Electrified Man in the Stench footage. And then he was replaced for the current day stuff mm -hmm. by Mark Harrier, who, this is his only feature as a director. He did a couple shorts afterwards, uh, but he's mostly known as an actor. And he was currently on Bosch, so he's still going in the acting world. Uh, but he was an actor in the Porky's trilogy, which was helmed by Bob Clark, who produced this movie and brought in a lot of his, you know, past friends and crew to work on this. So I don't know exactly why that switch happened. Again, that 2017 documentary probably explains it in more detail. Um, but, you know, there's this was something of a troubled production. And Jill Sholin, who was Maggie, replaced Amy O'Neill, who was originally supposed to play Maggie. Um, mm -hmm. After a couple weeks of shooting, yeah, that's so a lot of I mean, weird. They would have turnover. to reshoot a lot of scenes, I guess. Yeah, perhaps. Um, Amy O'Neill, if it hasn't done a whole lot since the '90s, but you probably know her best as Amy in Honey I Shrunk the Kids and um, Honey I Blew Up the Kids. She's like the older daughter yeah. that gets drunk down. Mm -hmm. um, she was supposed to play this part. So, troubled production in in terms of like turnover or whatever and and I, i'm assuming that's why alan ormsby decided to use the the fake name of todd hackett because he was just unhappy with the whole situation wanted his name off the picture so we have uh some of the <laughs> some of the other music that wasn't done by cynthia and barry uh was done by paul zaza who has also done a bunch of bob clark stuff but he also did like my bloody valentine um, but I thought the music overall was, was good. Like the scoring of this movie was really good. And especially since you had to like factor in, you know, films of like the fifties and sixties on top of like a current day horror score. I thought you did a really good job of mixing that. Um, Jill Sholin, we know her, uh, possibly best from like the stepfather. Uh, but she also does a lot of horror stuff like cutting class, Phantom of the Opera, uh, she was in Thunder Alley. She was in Babes in Toyland uh, back in the day. Um, and she's also in the 1991 movie Rich Girl. And she largely stopped acting after 1996 to focus on family. Tom Villard, who played Toby. We never said his name before. Um, I, if, if we want to go on a Toby Villard like movie spree just personally between us, we could. Because I have a couple of VHSs for his other movies. Parasite and Surf 2. He's in One Crazy Summer. Heartbreak Ridge. Um, I only know him as in the movie My Girl. And 
I know you haven't seen My Girl. I have not yet. But I was like, how do I know this guy? And then that's when I was like, oh, he's in My Girl. Yeah. He's also in 1991 movies Horror and Shakes the Clown. So we'll see him a few more times. Um, he was also in an episode, or he was also like the lead character in a TV sitcom called We Got a Maid, which is about like two bachelors who hire like um, an attractive, unexperienced person to be their housekeeper or maid, and like all the inner workings of them, like hmm. trying to balance their real relationships with wanting to be with their maid that they hired. So like it ran for two seasons, and he was one of the leads in that. Um, Derek Rydal. Uh, this was his last acting role. Uh, he was previously in a movie called Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, and so we're seeing like a lot of like Phantom of the yeah uh, parallels, and this makes sense. Like this was known in other countries as Phantom of the Cinema, which you know because he's like putting on masks and he's like you know mm. the creature behind the scenes. So that makes sense. He wrote eight episodes of Power Rangers Wild Force. He also wrote the movie Beethoven's Big Break, um, and he also wrote a book called I could, uh, <laughs> I could Have Written a Better Movie Than That, How to Make Six Figures as a Script Consultant Even If You're Not a Screenwriter. So evidently he he's working... he like, two credits of, like, writing Yeah, two credits. official credits on his own, but apparently he does a lot of polish and a lot of, like, uncredited mm. work that he gets paid for, and he's making a good living doing that, so good on him. And, you know, buy his book if you want to know how to do it, too. <laughs> Malcolm Denari played Bud, the wheelchair-bound guy, who is not actually wheelchair-bound from what I can tell. Um, he was also in the movies Christine and Flashdance, and also the movie Godzilla from 1998, as well as the TV series cartoon that accompanied that. Um, Leon, the only reason I want to mention Leon is like he was the guy in the straight jacket. He didn't really have much of a role in the movie, yeah. other than like unrequited love for Joni, who also did not have much room <laughs> in the movie. Um, uh, he's in a, a TV movie called Looking for Miracles. I think that's basically his only other role, um, aside from one episode of a TV show called T and T, starring Mr. T. Hmm. <laughs> so like a post A Team Mr. T hmm. TV show, uh, which that sounds like fun. Let's watch it. Yvette Solar, who played Joni, she was in The Grifters. Again, didn't do much acting. She actually now does. I was looking at her credits and I saw a whole bunch of like uh, credit as herself on the Bonnie Hunt show from back in the day when she had a talk show. And it's because she owns a boutique landscape design firm and she basically went on to like talk about gardening and stuff like that. So she's a successful business owner in non-cinema land now. Uh, Tina, this was surprising to me. She didn't have very many credits. Freddie Simpson who played Tina... Um, she didn't have very many credits at all, but she did play Ellen Sue in A League of Their Own. I saw So that. she was one of the Rockford Peaches. Yeah, she's the, I don't know if you remember, she's like the the model. She had blonde hair. Mm -hmm. She's the Southern Belle one. Yeah. That's and Ellen Sue. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, but that was like virtually it for her. So I don't yeah. know, I don't know the story there as to why. Um, we've talked about Kelly Joel Minter just last week. And again, we'll see her again in a couple of other movies, New Jack City, Out for Justice. Uh, but she's also been in, like, House Party. Joy was played by Karen Laurie, or Karen Witter at the time. Uh, she was married to Chuck Laurie, the Uber t producer, uh, until 2010. Um, what was interesting to me is that before this movie happened, like, she was, like, a guest star on, like, 
game shows, you know, $100,000 pyramid or super password and stuff like that. And I was like, well, why? And I, I looked into it and it's because she was a Playboy Playmate in 1983. So she was like popular for that and like modeling. And then she went into acting. So she was, like, doing, like, these guest spots on game shows and then became, like, an actress. And so she did, like, this, and she did, like, movies like Buried Alive, Out of the Dark, and also uh, the movie Paramedics, which is, like, you know, like a goofy comedy from, like, the 80s, which also starred uh, Ray Walston, who played Dr. M, better known as Mr. Hand on Fast Times. Yeah. Um, and that's about it, except for Landry Gates was played by Matt Falls, so effectively creepy. Um, that's his only acting role. He's basically, like, again, part of, like, the Bob Clark crew, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. I don't know uh, if he's fully part of that, but he's, like, special effects and makeup person. Um, he did the special effects and makeup for Pit and the Pendulum, which we've seen, and he'll also do it for Hook in 1991. Um, no awards to speak of, as you can imagine. Also, unfortunately, no coming attractions. Again, we watched the VHS. We yeah, were hoping to see previews. Very disappointed. There was no previews. The movie just started. Yeah, it's sad. It's also rare for like a VHS from 1991 yeah, to no not have pre- some sort no, of promo. Yeah, or so. nothing at the end. No bloops. Yeah. <laughs> to true crime and pop culture, I guess. Yep. So I have a few things that happened. This movie was released on February 1st, 1991, and I haven't spoken about books in a while, but the not the second novel of John Grisham, The Firm, was released on this day, which that would have been turned into a movie a couple of years later, and like I've never... I think, yeah. Yeah, I've never read the book, and I've never seen the movie. No, me either. But I would see it because legal dramas I'll watch now. I I kind of avoided them because I work in the legal field, but I'll watch them now, I guess. I Just think it's to... supposed to be a pretty decent one overall. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think, like, my mom read a lot of John Grisham. I just never... I never read any of his books, and I've, I like the, the movie adaptations of his books, I guess. I just... I don't think I've ever seen The Firm. Yeah. No, I, I avoided a lot of that stuff and like a few good men or like all kinds of like um, oh, legal. Pelican Brief and oh, yeah, I mean, a lot I've of legal seen, stuff I never yeah. really cared about. I've seen a few good men and that's what I thought this was. <laughs> but I was like, no, it's not that. No, it's not. And um that's about that's it that happened on that day. But and I, I wanted to get into the personal life of Tom Villard, who played Toby in the movie. Unfortunately died November 1994 so like a couple years later and he was at he died at the age of 40 and toward the ends of end of his life Villard became one of the few actors in Hollywood to basically come out and about being open in his homosexuality and then he also came out that he was HIV positive and had AIDS this, he came out in February of 1994, where he was he made an appearance on Entertainment Tonight interview that he had that, you know, he needed some help. That's all it said. 
and what I've seen on, I just saw like an article. I, I don't know if I can find the episode of it. If there is an episode of it, I'm curious. But he just came out as gay and then he also came out that he had AIDS and then he said, I need some help. Saying maybe because his health was declining because he died several months later that year. Yeah. And so according to certain magazines, they did a profile of Villard saying that after that Entertainment Tonight appearance, an awful lot of people suddenly wouldn't let him into the door for any auditions. He started speaking a couple months about living with AIDS and having hope, and it felt more useful. He said, it felt, it feels a little more useful than things I've done in the past. And then he went to explain that since that appearance, a whole other group of people have come forward to welcome him. And then his manager added that, you know, he was very proud of Villar for coming out and saying that, you know, this business is a lousy, this is a quote, acting as a lousy business. He made a decision that was courageous in any walk of life, but it doesn't surprise me of how he was treated. And, you know, on November 14th, 1994, just a few days before turning 41, Villard died of AIDS-related pneumonia. And then as a tribute to him, there was a nonprofit foundation that was created by his partner, and um, it's called the Tom Villard Foundation, and it was in the Silver Lake community. It's a neighborhood in LA, which engaged local businesses to provide free goods and services to the community members living with AIDS. But I think that foundation no longer exists. But there is another organization called Being Alive that is still around and headquartered in Hollywood. So either it changed names or yeah, I don't, um, it's it maybe it changed name from the Tom Villard Foundation to Being Alive. It just says that the Tom Villard Foundation is no longer in existence, okay. but Being Alive is. Moving on to music. So okay, the other thing is that I was trying to look up the Billboard Top 100 list, and I know that we mentioned several weeks ago whenever Europa was released Mm -hmm. that um, Whitney Houston's Star Spangled Banner was on the top 100 and um, the Super Bowl that was during Super Bowl 25 which was January 27th 1991 which was a few days before this movie was released so I was looking on the top 100 for this week and that song is not on their yet yeah it might so they not may have, have, yeah, they might not have been able to turn around into a single yeah they may yet. have not i mean yeah that's why i was like oh let me see if it's if it was higher because i think by the time europa was out in may it was like number 98 on the top 100 charts so i'm yeah. wondering if it was higher in the earlier months that's what i was trying to find but it's not a not even on there yet yeah so if we see like an april or early may they're still uh, recording the cassette tapes. Yeah, yeah, they're, the they're, they're, yeah. It's only been they're, like four days. It's so. only been <laughs> less than a week, so they're probably like, get this out on the airwaves, stat. Yeah. 
Um, it's but, like, oh, there's demand for this? I guess we got to release yeah, a single. Yeah. Like, they probably were shocked. Right. So, anyway, for the week, the top five songs for the week of February 1st, 1991, <laughs> I had to look some of these songs up. Uh-huh. Um, but the number one song was The First Time by Surface. We'll put these videos on the website and i was like i don't i i had to listen re-listen to this and be like oh i know this all and then number two is gonna make you sweat by cc music factory we know that one yeah that's been on the charts that's about the same amount as time a time as everything i do (laughs) it's like they're they're both always on the chart yeah number three is love will never do without you by janet jackson Number four is Sensitivity by Ralph Tresvent, which I had to look that one up, that song up too. But Ralph, if you know, was in New Edition. Oh, okay. And this is his first single, I suppose, after New Edition, you know, broke up. Bobby Brown's doing his own thing, Mm -hmm. so Ralph is now doing, this is like his first single after New Edition. And then number five was Play the Funky Music by Vanilla Ice. Wow. Who we will eventually see on the podcast. Yeah, at some point. And then moving on to TV. So February 1st, 1991 was a Friday, and it was the typical TGIF lineup. But on I still I have more shows that I've never heard of. That I'm gonna ask if you've heard of them. Yeah, because this is like a carryover from the 1990 or like mid-season. Yeah, this is like type yeah, this here. is the this is like yeah, night the fall season of 1990. Yeah. So on CBS was a show called Guns of Paradise. Have you heard of this? It sounds vaguely familiar, but like all I'm picturing in my mind is something like China Beach. Okay. Where it's you know like a military show in like hawaii or something you Mm. know (laughs) so this is okay it was called paradise but it was later renamed renamed to guns of paradise and it's american western family (laughs) family television series was it on a it it was network it wasn't like it was on cbs no it was on cbs from october 98 1988 to may 1991 so this was three seasons Wow. And I don't know. It stars... Okay, so the premise is it sets in a fictional city called Par- in Paradise, California, set in 1890. And it stars Lee Horsley as Ethan Allen Cord. Lee, I looked up Lee Horsley and I he was not in a lot of stuff, but... He has been in Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight as maybe some sort of other Western dude. So maybe mm. this dude just does Western stuff because he yeah, has that look. Maybe he's really good at growing that handlebar mustache yes, or something. And Quentin Tarantino cast him in two of them. So he plays Ethan Allen Cord, who is a professional gunfighter who was forced to take custody of the four children of his sister, who was a St. Louis singer who was dying and unable to make any other arrangements for their care. Okay. And Cord realizes that his profession is unsuitable to raise children. 
So he decides to change that and he rents a farm in Paradise, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> this is just like him trying to live a peaceful life but is constantly haunted by his violent past and frequently called upon by the townspeople to defend them in lawlessness. This is three seasons. Oh, well, I mean, like, oh, there's this... a lot of bad sound. I mean, I'm not into westerns. Yeah, me neither. Ones, like, I don't know. I think about, like, how long Walker, Texas Ranger lasted, you know what I mean? Like, that wasn't, like, a good show either, yeah, <laughs> but it lasted guess, a long time. Yeah, I just so. like, I don't know, I don't really care. <laughs> He's just, I'm trying to live a simple life, and all these things happen yeah, to him. Yeah, it's just, it is kind of weird that it lasted for three seasons, and neither of us remembered that it existed. I mean, we yeah, were we were f- kids. Uh, I mean, I was not paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> really. After that was Dallas, which we all know. I've heard. Sort of. I've never watched it. No. And um, after that, this is 10 o'clock at night on a Friday, the George Burns show, which... Is I'm, that a special or an actual show? It was a talk show. It was kind of like a re I don't want to like a re appearance because he you know he used to do the George Burns and Gracie Allen show right. with his wife yeah, in it's like the more 50s of like a variety type of a show so like I think this is him doing his own show like a similar thing huh and it was George Burns 95th birthday that was the episode okay yeah, that's why I was wondering if it was, like, a special, because I know they did, like, specials for virtually every single birthday he had. Oh, okay. At a certain point, like, the, you know, 100, his 100th birthday was, like, a big event. Yeah, but then he died shortly after, didn't he die when he was 100? I don't remember exactly what age he was when he died, but he made it to 100. Yeah. Uh, on Fox, there was America's Most Wanted, and then a show called Against the Law. Do you want to guess what this is about? <laughs> it sounds like it would star a Steven Seagal. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, he always has like those three-word titles. Oh, of, like, the law. Law against above suspicion of. Yeah, this is an American legal comedy drama that was on for only a season so it was from september 1990 up until april 1991 it stars michael o'keefe and michael o'keefe i'm not sure if you remember him he was he was in roseanne he's the he was um aunt jackie's boyfriend fred yes okay that's him he was also in caddyshack Yes. Those are the only like, credits I've He was like the know main teen. Yeah, the main teen in there. Yeah. So, stars him and then Suzanne Douglas, who I don't know if you know this show. She was mostly known for the sitcom The Parenthood. Do you remember that with Robert Townsend? Yeah. Barely. I, I never watched it, but I, yeah. Me neither, but... I know it existed. She was, the like, starring in that with okay. Robert Townsend. So this show was these two. 
So it stars Michael O'Keefe and Suzanne Douglas. It's a series centered on the brash Boston lawyer who Michael O'Keefe O'Keefe pay, plays someone by the name of Simon McHeath. Okay. <laughs> Just that name. A, Boston, a brash Boston lawyer who left his job at a prestigious law firm to start his own defense practice. It's a show about lawyers. What could go wrong? Yep. There's only 3,000 of them. I know. Another lawyer show. And then there's a, Rosalind Chow is in it. Do you know who Rosalind Chow is? Not by name. She, I know her from the Joy Luck Club, and then she was most most recently in the live action Mulan as Mulan's mom. Oh, okay. So, next after that, on NBC was the main event, which that's you know just a sports uh-huh. show. Yeah, just whatever. Like. After that was Dark Shadows, which was the revival of the Dark Shadows from, like, in the 60s. Yeah. And I I never watched either of it, but I know they made a movie, and I didn't didn't even watch the movie either. But, I mean, it sounds, like, right up my alley, because it's a gothic soap opera (laughs) about vampires, which, I mean, I love vampires. I think the biggest thing is, like, yeah, there's so much history to it that it's Yeah, it's like, I don't even know where to begin. Right. I remember that we, uh, at the video store that I worked at, we had, like, a whole row of Dark Shadows VHS tapes of, like, episodes that people could rent, and they never did. (laughs) But this was only aired from January to March of 91, so it was just, I don't know if it was meant to just be the one season. It probably just failed. Mm. Probably nobody cared about the reboot. So that was on. I mean, I I would watch it. I just don't know where to begin. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in it. So was he a child vampire? (laughs) Maybe. And um, after that was another show that sounds really interesting. And it's called Midnight Caller. Have you heard of this show? No. I don't think so. It sounds like it would be like... um... Silk stockings. That's like what I was thinking. Like too. a radio show host. Yeah, you're you're getting close. Okay. So this is an American drama television series, and this was three seasons as well. It's was on NBC from October 1988 until May 1991, and it was one of the first TV shows to address the dramatic possibilities of the growing phenomenon of talk radio. Okay. So Midnight Caller starred Gary Cole okay, as Jack Killian, a former San Francisco police detective who had quit the force after he accidentally shot his partner dead in a confrontation. So he lapsed into alcoholism. Killian receives an offer from Devin King, who is played by Wendy Kilborn. I tried to look her up. She was not in much after this. Okay. It doesn't sound familiar. She was in a mini-series called North and South. That was all I could find out. Yeah, it was about the Civil War. Okay. So she was in that, <laughs> she was in that mini-series. 
just so we're like thousands of people. So. Yeah, so she's this wealthy owner and operator of KJCM FM, and she needed, you know, a, an overnight talk show host, and he becomes known as, quote, the Nighthawk for taking calls from listeners and acting as a t- detective solving their problems during the day. So people would call in at night, and he would solve these problems during the day. Okay. I'm curious about this sure. show. You said it ran for three seasons? Yeah, three seasons. Maybe it's available somewhere. On to rankings and ratings. Uh, where on your one to five star scale where would you rate popcorn? Uh, I'm going to give this a three. Okay, that's fair. Um, on my zero to four star scale, I think I'm going to give it a three out of four as well. I think... I know that, like, I looked at a couple reviews, they were not kind to it at the time. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, enough time has gone by that you can kind of, like, yeah, you can appreciate some of it. And... I mean, this is probably, like, because I've heard a lot, when I listen to certain horror podcasts, a lot of people name this movie as one of their favorites. So it's kind of like a hidden... Yeah, I think it is something of a hidden gem now because yeah. it did not perform very well. And yeah, I feel like you know they didn't fully know how to market it, as possibly evidenced by the box art. Um, but it, yeah, it's a it's a good movie that has some problems, but like it's just fun. I don't know, it's just like a lot of fun, a really good atmosphere, lively with the crowd and everything gets involved in the movies within the movies. There's just a lot to take in, and it's good. Yeah. Uh, any movies worth watching once? Would you watch this again? Yeah, I would watch this in a midnight movie type thing if there were mosquitoes and things flying around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that probably would never happen. Yeah. But yeah, be- yeah I, I mean, I would watch it even not in a theater, but I, I would like to see it in a theater with other people around. Same thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it'd be best if you could see it in a theater so you could have like the theater reacting to the theater in the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's still good enough on its own that it's worth watching. Uh, and if you out there want to watch Popcorn as of this recording in September 2021, it's only available on VHS or DVD, which is out of print and so unfortunately expensive. But as always, check your local listings as that might change. Um, as for us, you can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. It really does help us out a lot. You can email us at 1991movierewind at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Just search 1991 Movie Rewind or go to 1991MovieRewind.com for the full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week, we'll be continuing our horror month with The Terror Within 2, which is available on Tubi, Shout Factory TV, Digital Rental, VHS, DVD. We'll see you then. Thanks. Thanks.